Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Each week we bring you something about horses and horsemanship on the show, and this week is no exception. (laughs) On today's show, we have T.J. Holmes, a BLM volunteer. And Mustang advocate. Talking about the Mustangs that are part of the Spring Creek Basin Herd Management Area. You know, Renee, Mustangs can be a little bit of a controversial topic. There's a lot of emotion and... And sentiment and images of the Old West, and everybody wants to keep the wild horses, but it can be difficult to manage that land. And the BLM's in kind of a tough spot, and they, uh, they're charged with managing the land. It's called the Bureau of Land Management. And it kind of reminded me of when we were first married, which was quite some time ago. <laughs> But, you know, you were in charge of the stuff that were that was on the inside of the house, mm-hmm. and I was in charge of the stuff that was on the outside of the house. And we each had our own budget for the different things that we wanted to do. And we've got a large number of animals, and they were part of your budget. It would seem to me that it would have been unfair if you would have just come along and said, hey, you know what, now for the uh, cats and dogs, I want to put them on your budget because they're out in the yard sometimes. Yeah, and I'd go, well, wait a minute, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And right. I kind of feel like the BLM is between a rock and a hard spot. They were, they had these Mustangs kind of on their property and on their land that they were managing, but then they were told how to manage them. And it just seems to me that the politicians are not the right people to help make these decisions. And I'd really like to just see scientists and really smart people talk about different solutions that we could do and then try to implement those and take a little bit of of the emotion out of it. And that's why we have TJ Holmes on the show today is because that Spring Creek Basin herd management area is really working out well, where they were rounding up horses and removing them. Putting them in holding pens where they might get adopted, they might not. And if they lived out their lives in the holding pen, how horrible was that? Yeah, and that's not fair to a horse. That's not that's not what's best for the horse. No, it's not. And that Spring Creek Basin hasn't had a roundup in seven years now. And they're not looking to have one in the future. So they've got a program that's working. It's keeping that herd size stable. And that's the kind of solutions that that I think need to be looked at a little bit more carefully and see if they fit into other uh, other Mustang programs around right. the country. And that was a, a horse lover working with BLM to come up with a, a good creative solution that's been working well. Yeah, so we think you'll enjoy this conversation with T.J. Holmes of the Spring Creek Basin Wild Herd Management area. It's a long name. There's a, and there's a lot of technicalities. Gosh, I hope I'm not getting these wrong because there's herd management areas and there's herds and there's wild range. TJ will tell you yeah. all about it. So whatever she says, that's probably the right thing. And now our conversation with TJ Holmes. And her work with the Spring Creek Basin Mustangs. We're speaking with TJ Holmes, a Mustang advocate and BLM volunteer. And you volunteer at the Spring Creek Basin Herd Management Area. Herd Management Area. Thanks, TJ. Welcome to the Woe Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you wanting to talk about our Mustangs. Well, you, we're going to ask some really probably silly questions because we know nothing about wild herd management and we understand that you know quite a bit. So 
we're gonna we're gonna learn about them. Learn from you, yeah. Please, yeah, anything. The Spring Creek Basin herd management area. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what is involved in that wild Mustang herd? That seems like an easy question, but it's a long one. <laughs> it's a long answer. Um, <laughs> Spring Creek Basin herd management area is about twenty-two thousand acres on BLM land um, in southwest Colorado. It is about three hours south of Grand Junction, for people Mm -hmm. who don't know exactly where it is. We are pretty close to Utah. I can see the LaSalle Mountains from here, (laughs) from just about anywhere in the basin. So we are, it's high desert. Um, We don't get a lot of rain. I think the elevation ranges from probably 6,000 feet or so to probably into the 7,000, although Spring Creek Basin is fairly even in terms of elevation, and it is, as the name suggests, a big basin. And I always, I get real picky with people, but Spring Creek and Spring Creek Basin are not the same thing. (laughs) So let me explain that right away, and we'll get that out of the way. Spring Creek and its tributary arroyos drain Spring Creek Basin. Spring Creek Basin literally is kind of a big bowl, and all these these arroyos of varying sizes catch rainwater and snow, although it's mostly rainwater that flows. We don't get enough snow to have any runoff, mm-hmm. but the arroyos, those serve as channels for water to run off, and so they drain Spring Creek Basin. It all kind of runs to the middle, sort of, and then out through Spring Creek across Disappointment Valley into the Disappointment Creek, which <laughs> runs into the Dolores River, which runs into the Colorado River. It's it's kind of an interesting thing, and the only time Spring Creek runs is when we get a major rain event. So it's not like the horses have access to running water all the time. Uh, What else? We have a lot of our vegetation is salt desert type shrubs. There's a lot of greasewood, shad scale, four wing salt bush. We also have a lot of good grasses like uh, Indian rice grass, Gaeta, Grandma, uh, needle and thread. We do have cheatgrass, which is an invasive. And part of the reason I kind of go to that is we've been doing vegetation monitoring in the basin mm-hmm. this year and last year in partnership with our BLM manager who's very interested in vegetation side of things. What we're finding is uh, that because of our balanced herd population, which we can get into, we're actually doing really well in Spring Creek Basin despite our dryness. Um, we've actually had some rain here in the last week or two, a couple weeks. The land itself, is that owned by the BLM? Yes, it is BLM land. Herd management area uh, designates land that is set aside for the management of wild horses. There are, there are three categories. Uh, herd area is an area that may have wild horses on it, mm-hmm. but apparently it doesn't have a management plan. AML, which is appropriate management level, which is the population range that BLM thinks a, a certain place can sustain, is zero because it doesn't. It's not managed for horses. So you've got herd herd area, and then herd management area, which is how most of the federal land that does contain wild horses and burros is classified on BLM land. Not this is not uh, considering Forest Service, um, and then wild horse range. And there are three wild horse ranges. The two most um, known are Little Book Cliffs Wild Horse Range, which is near Grand Junction, and then Prior Mountain 
Wild Horse Range, which mm-hmm. is straddles the Wyoming-Montana border, and a lot of people know that it's Clouds Herd. Were these horses there to begin with, and then the BLM put a fence around it, or did they did they put horses in there? So the, the 1971 Wild Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act said that horses would, would be managed where they were found. So those areas were noted, studied, and then that's how we have herd management areas now. Not just any BLM land can be herd management area. They're, they're historically designated ranges, for lack of a better word. So the horses were here. They're apparently were here, were in this region in a couple, at least a couple of different herds. This area was designated, I think, in the 80s as a herd management area. And I don't know when the fences actually came into being. That's one thing that we've asked at various times as we've been out working on fences, repairing, rebuilding fence. But I don't actually know when, when Spring Creek Basin was fenced. And you mentioned a couple of times about the appropriate management level. Is there a calculation that the BLM has, or does it depend? Is it dependent on a lot of other factors? So that's a bit of a, a tricky question, and I don't totally have a good answer for it. It's it's a point of controversy, especially kind of right now. BLM. So it is, I think it is supposed to have kind of a formula laid out depending on livestock grazing, wildlife use, and wild horse use. And so taking those things into account, taking into account vegetation monitoring um, in different years, we have livestock grazing of this amount, you know, this number of cattle or this number of sheep, (laughs) you know, this kind of use by wildlife, they kind of allocate. One thing that the that the wild horse and burrow advocates are worried about is that too little of that allocation goes to wild horses on herd management areas with where the horses are supposed to be the primary resource that BLM is managing for. Livestock use is a thing. It's also historic, right? I mean, right. yeah, again, country was kind of built on, you know, especially in the West, grazing. Um, and that kind of thing. Water is a big deal. So without getting into too much of that controversy side, the National Academy of Sciences did come out in 2013 with a big, big study, and in that found that it's not always completely, totally scientific how those AMLs were established, okay. which also makes for kind of a continuing, you know, controversial thing. A point of bickering, um, as it were. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's talk about you and your involvement with the Spring Creek Basin. In your work with the Basin, you've been around since there since 2007, and and when did you start documenting the horses there? Yeah, so that's so I've been visiting since 2002, 2002. documenting since 2007. Well, when you say documenting, uh, that what do you mean by that? I mean that I keep track of births, deaths, band structure, you know, what stallions are band stallions, what stallions are bachelor stallions, um, when a young stallion might get, a, you know, his first mare, which means some other band stallion has lost her potentially, mm-hmm. and or, you know, a young mare goes from her, her birth, her family band, to a stallion, colors, markings, et cetera, of the horses, in, in, you know, specifically. 
Right. So you're doing all the bookkeeping. Basically, yeah. How many bands are in the herd? We have, depending on how things change, and I count bachelor bands also in the Mm -hmm. whole mix, so probably anywhere between like 11 and 13 right now. You, you have a total of about between 60 and 65 horses. Our AML is 35 to 65, and we have about 60 horses right now. Six, zero. <laughs> You've got to, after all this documentation, you have to know an awful lot about how wild horse herds kind of manage themselves in general. So that you've got several different bands, and how do horses work in the wild? <laughs> Much better than, well, this is going to be political, but much better than humans. <laughs> <laughs> Not hard to do these days. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. We often talk about, you know, if only people in cities, let's just say cities, could observe really any animals in the wild. I mean, even domestic horses. I mean, you can you can sit in your pasture and kind of watch a little bit of hierarchy stuff going on. When you start watching the wild herds, it becomes infinitely more fascinating because they were born this way. They live this way. I mean, it's like us being fluent in English. They're fluent in horse, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are the students and we're just watching it wide-eyed, fascinated, trying to learn all we can. What are some of the more uh, impressive things that you've noticed about their social hierarchy and uh, interaction? They They are very polite. They have a very developed sense of etiquette, <laughs> which is a very human way to say it. But one thing that I've learned specifically about the Mustangs, they are, they're very polite. They seem to expect, and again, I know this is very anthropomorphic, but they seem to expect a certain degree of respect, being respected as well as giving respect. This is the hardest thing about the horses because they're, if you watch them, you know, you mean, you see they're different, they're more. And it's everybody I talk to, it's so hard to articulate that, that thing that makes them different. They're more aware, more in tune, more fluent, more, you know, just whatever. You know, things are, are solved pretty quickly. You know, somebody's, say, a foal, foal, you know, I don't know, happens to, to get his mother with with his teeth when he's nursing and she is, you know, she snips at him right away and then she's fine. You know, her ears are, are relaxed again. She might be kind of dozing, but you can tell if he does it again and she's on him again. Well, then you mm-hmm. pretty much don't see it again. <laughs> you know, the stallions may snake the mares around to get where, where they want to go. The mares switch their tail and they kind of sort of end up going eventually maybe where they want to go. Well, this might be way too basic, but how's the the social structure of those 60 horses? A lot of people don't understand how horses are socially structured in the wild. Can you give us a little idea on on how they pair off or band together? So they, that also is, is endlessly fascinating. We tend to think of wild horse band structure. So a band is a family. Maybe I'll start even that okay. basic. A band within a herd is a family. So the Spring Creek Basin herd is made up of 11 to 13 bands. Mm-hmm. Those bands are typically family units. And like I said, I include the bachelor bands in that. So we have a group of about four bachelors right now. Two of them are pretty young. But they've been bachelors for at least a year. One just joined them. He's maybe a year or so older. 
but he's just a new bachelor because his band just kind of got broken up. So he kind of found himself without his mother, without his father, and said, I need some friends, right? How does a band get broken up? Well, let me go back to that for a minute, and okay. then I'll go come back around. So the fourth bachelor in that group is an old stallion, and he's probably 30, at least 30. Yeah. Those four are together. They'll have a more dynamic uh, structure than a fam, like, you know, a Maristian Fools kind of structure, because the two younger guys, they've been together for probably about six or eight months, so they're pretty buddied up. The older guy, he's with them kind of because of circumstance, and they're just kind of in the area where he's also. Mm-hmm. And so then the young guy, the one that just found them, he's just kind of wandering. He's looking for, you know, buddy, buddiness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then the band that got broken up, that had to do with another stallion, had a mare and her yearling filly, and the mare that he had had with this colt was with a different band. So I don't know exactly how all that came about, but right now, like I said, we've gotten some rain. We've gotten some actually pretty decent rain in the last couple of weeks. The grass has pretty well exploded. Um, Mm. The ponds have filled up, and so the horses, instead of being really really distant and separate from each other are in some cases closer, like the bands, some of the bands are closer to each other because in some places there's really good grass that the horses hadn't really been using lately because they didn't have a good water source nearby. And by nearby, I mean within a couple of miles. It's a little bit, again, at the risk of being anthropomorphic, it's a little bit like going to a party. Right. You know, there's some drinking and there's eating and, you know, somebody wants the Doritos and somebody else want the girlfriend of the guy who's focused on the Doritos and, you know, things happen. <laughs> it sounds like when times are good, then uh, they're they're a little bit more tolerant of each other. And maybe when times aren't so good, they, they're a little more protective of the space and spots that they, they've staked out. Right. And the opposite. So right now, times are good, but they're closer. So that proximity, so to make it just kind of a logical straight across the board thing, I think it's just a proximity thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know okay. what I mean? Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend out there each day? Um, I'm not in the basin every day. Um, I'm here on the ranch every day checking on my horses and you know looking at them and paying attention to what's going on here. And um, So I'm in the basin, uh, depending on the time of year, anywhere from maybe once a week to a few times a week. Mm-hmm. And then I generally spend a couple hours to several hours, again, depending on time of the year and, and what I'm doing out there. Mm-hmm. I read the Nat Geo article Ben Masters did on you earlier this year, and there was a photo of you riding one of your own horses. Do you ride that horse out in in the basin? No. <laughs> no, that was kind of a Hollywood thing. Um, okay. Because uh, that would be I mean, kind of crazy, fine, you know? huh? <laughs> uh, well, and, and people do. You can ride because it's public land. There's no, you know, there's no uh, restrictions on riding your horse on public land. People are often surprised to find out there's hunting in Spring Creek Basin. Again, public land. Mm-hmm. But no, the horse that I was riding was actually one of my quarter horses. I've got two here on the ranch that I ride. Our Mustangs are only sanctuary here on the ranch. Okay. So I have a couple of quarter horses that I ride. I have ridden in Spring Creek Basin, but I don't do it 
other than just I'm on my horse riding on public land. You know what I mean? So I drive in and then I I hike. I hike a lot. (laughs) I do a lot of walking. 22,000 acres is a big space. (laughs) Yes. The herd population is managed using PZP, which is a birth control that is given to the, the mares. And Correct. you had to you had to challenge the BLM in order to use PZP. Uh, I wouldn't say challenge. I would say encourage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we we used BLM used PZP twenty two in two thousand seven on the five released mares, which means you know horses are are rounded up, they're caught, and then depending on numbers of horses in the pens versus what BLM thinks was its original herd size, BLM wanted to be at the low end of the AML, which was 35. It ended up, they didn't have an accurate documentation of the numbers at that time, so they released horses and they ended up with about 43. So they used PVP-22 that year, that was in 2007. It didn't work. And we don't know whether it was the time of year, it was done in August, or the application, it was done by BLM um, in a shoot so then in 2010, I wrote a proposal to BLM to use native PZP because I went up to a roundup in Little Book Cliffs, found out about their documentation, and thought, well, that's the place to start, obviously. Mm-hmm. you got to know what you're managing. Um, exactly. Also found out they were using PZP, native PZP, the one-year dose, which has great efficacy. So submitted the proposal. BLM was like, well, hmm, we don't think so, but thanks anyway. Well, then I went to the Science and Conservation Center and got trained uh, by Dr. Jay Kirkpatrick, who, I'm going to cry, my hero, one of my (laughs) very amazing heroes. The world lost a great man when he passed away, unfortunately. But he set uh, the foundation for using PZP at a management level, not only for wild horses, but many species of wildlife, which I think hasn't been used as much as it could be, but that's, you know, another thing. Anyway, and so then by the by the time we had another roundup in 2011, we had also some personnel changes, and we got we were able to get BLM to say, yes, we will use PZP. We will start. We will implement a PZP program with this roundup. And so that's what happened. The mares that were released after that roundup, they all got a primer in the chute before they were released, and then we've been darting ever since. Can you give a brief explanation of the difference between PZP-22 and native PZP? Yeah, so PZP-22, uh, the 22 stands for months, as in 22 months, which mm-hmm. is two gestational cycles. So the PZP-22 is a, is a, a longer-acting PZP. Native PZP is one year. Okay, when it works, the PZP-22, is that supposed to be a single dose? Because it sounds like the native, you need need to give an initial dose, then a booster. Correct. And the PZP-22 is designed to have both of those in the same dose. So uh, when we did it um, in 2007, it was, it was hand-inject only, which meant the mm. horses, the mares, had to be rounded up and the, the, mm. the capsule injected while the mare was in a chute. Now, one of the improvements to PZP-22 is that they can do it by DART, like with native PZP. How much does it cost in PZP equipment, in DARTing equipment, and how much does it cost the BLM to manage that herd in dollars, would you say? Uh, 
well, I'm terrible at math, so I can't give you an overall number, but here's the crazy thing. So PVP, the adjuvant, okay, mm-hmm. and then the dart, I'm about to blow your mind, less than 30 bucks a mare. Wow. Yeah, right? Wow. Volunteer labor, I cost them zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I'm I'm very much in favor of of BLM reimbursing its starters where and when it can. My situation, you know, I live extremely close to my herd management area, so my labor is is all is volunteer. But the cost of PVP, when you compare it with the cost of roundups and of caring for horses for, you know, their lifetime, whether in, in short-term holding or long-term holding, PDP becomes kind of a no-brainer. Oh, yeah. That would still cost way less. Hey, hypothetical. Say you've got a mare and she's standing next to another mare and you're aiming for one and you misshoot the, the one that's already had a dose. Is there any ill effects from the overdose of PZP? No. Because PZP, and I'm glad you brought that up because it gives me the chance to also say that PZP is not a hormone, not a steroid, not any crazy thing that anybody has mislabeled it. It's a protein. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so beautiful the way PZP works. It just blocks, and if I can go into that for just a minute, in complete simple layman's terms, it just blocks conception. It works on the mare's immune system. So it's called an immunocontraceptive. And what it does is makes her body think that the stallion sperm is a foreign body. Mm. And so it rejects it. It blocks the receptors and she just doesn't conceive. If she's pregnant and gets started, it doesn't hurt the fetus. It's so just elegantly simple. That's a great point because if she's pregnant and you shoot her, she has that fall, and then the next year she's likely not to conceive. Hopefully, and it depends. Part of that probably depends on timing. You know what I mean? Like how Mm -hmm. pregnant she is and or when she gets the dose. Got it. Well, Mm -hmm. so and that that also brings up a good point. So when I dart, I dart in the spring. So a mare that's never been darted before, like a young mare, say, I'll hit her with the primer dose like late winter. And then a month or so later, I'll get her with the booster dose. So she's probably not pregnant because she's young. And then do you have, is it about 50-50 mares and stallions, or is it more mares? We are, yes. We are pretty close. Uh, I think it's roughly 30 30 stallions and 30 mares. But you're saying in that 2007 year, those five mares did go on to foal? Yes. Uh. But I think what they're saying now, and I just read a thing in the last couple of days about from the uh, wildlife, I forget the name of it, there was a there was a wildlife fertility conference in Washington, D.C. just within the last month, I think, that had a variety of people from various countries, actually, and, with, and working with a variety of species. I can never get these guys right, but Dr. Alan Rutberg and Dr. John Turner, I can never remember one or the other of them, or maybe both, are working on PZP-22. Dr. Jay Kirkpatrick's focus was native PZP, but they're saying now that PZP-22 is has caught up mm. to the effectiveness of native PZP. Well, that would that would be nice for you, yeah. Yeah, well, it would be nice for BLM. Everybody, then right. They stop having kind of that excuse, well, we can't, you know, it won't work on big herds. Well, actually, it will work. You just have to put out the effort to get 
there, mm-hmm. but it does work, which is a huge pet peeve of mine that they say it doesn't work. <laughs> and then it, one of the biggest things is, to me, the biggest challenge is, is if you have a larger herd, they need a good bookkeeper like you've been. I mean, you've you documented this herd with photographs. That's the, your way of identification. If you get a bigger herd, or like the herd I initially talked to, to you about, it, the herd that's here, the Oak Creek horses, where they're all black with just minimal <laughs> white markings, you can't tell one right. from another, you know? And yeah. However... Mm. There you go. What would you do? (laughs) Well, I read this really great book um, a couple of years ago about a guy who studied pronghorn antelope on the National Bison Range. They had every single one of those pronghorns specifically identified. Wow. What? Yeah, how'd they do that? (laughs) So, want to. That's the answer. Want to. Yeah. Well, Samwash Basin, there are 600 horses. Every single one of them is identified, is documented. Wow. By chips or by uh, tattoos or how do they identify? No, them? by sight. By sight. By sight. Same way I've done it. Somebody's, by sight, by photograph, by a database. The markings. By the, people yeah. who go out there. Exactly. And look. Wow. Yeah. But wow. here's another thing. <laughs> it, so everybody's like, oh, Spring Creek Basin's easy. It's small. There's not many horses. Well, but think of it this way. There are a lot of Spring Creek Basins within Sandwash Basin. Sandwash Basin is 158,000 acres. Well, there's a lot of 22,000-acre areas there, right? right? Again, manageable. An elephant. Right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So if you break those areas up, even to these herd management areas that are, you know, a million acres or the complexes that are a million acres, there, if you have the want to, I mean, we put men on the moon, Right. <laughs> We can fence off some parcels. <laughs> I don't play devil's advocate here, but I am. Right. <laughs> I, is that you're dealing with a government organization, and and I'm still having a, a hard time wrapping my brain around knowing all these different horses by sight and and I being able to identify them. Easier than you think. He's not very good at it. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. So, so of course, I have to assume everybody else is terrible at it, too. But if something were, heaven forbid, happened to you, would somebody else be able to step into your position and say, oh, yeah, that's uh, uh, Juanza, or that's Hollywood, or some of the horses I've seen pictures that you've taken on on your blog? Yes. Well, yes. great. Yeah, and especially in a place like Sandwash Basin, they've got a, there are a lot of eyes on that herd, and that's part of the thing too that we're we the advocates are trying to advance is instead of sitting in front of your computer on Facebook and you know just simply disagreeing with the roundups, <laughs> if you can, and I know that you know the West is a big place and it's far from many urban centers, but get out there and and document those horses. There are multiple more groups and eyes and on-the-ground advocates now than even 10 years ago when I started. And is there an organization for those advocates? There are multiple organizations. Many herds have their own particular groups, like the Pine Nut Advocates Mm -hmm. um, in Nevada. And um, I'm not sure if it's that herd or if it might be. They have close to 3,000 horses identified. Wow. My goodness. That's pretty good. So, I mean, again, it can. I mean, I'm... 
I'm being real general because I'm not involved with those herds. Um, mm-hmm. I know the ones in Colorado, and I'm I try to be very active in supporting our other advocacy groups and their herds because you know somebody helped me. Little Book Club's uh, Friends of the Mustangs, a couple people with that are two of my original heroes. They inspired me, so I try to pay that forward. Right. But again, it comes down to want to. So the way we do it, we're not like we're not breeding for color. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a couple of buckskins because of horses introduced, because our herd is so small, we've, we've introduced horses periodically, you know, to keep the genetics viable. Um, we've got gray. Gray is our dominant color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's not like we've got the, this crazy colorful herd like they do in Little Book Cliffs um, or McCullough Peaks up in Wyoming. Um, we've got pretty, you know, normal colored horses. Um <laughs> So we're not breeding for, we're not selecting. Every mare gets to have foals. And we haven't, we've been doing it just for six years, so we haven't gotten to a point of saying, you know, narrowing that down and being specific. Well, every mare gets to have one foal. You know, like it's the management program at Assateague Island National mm-hmm. Shore. Um, but the thing is, Spring Creek Basin is fenced. It is managed. And I, for one, would sure as heck rather have three to five foals a year than have 10, 15, 20 foals a year and realize that three quarters of those foals are going to grow up and, and end up going to a pen or their parents. Absolutely. Are. Right. You know? So, I mean, to me, it's, it's a no-brainer. Okay, John here. Sorry, I had to break in. We were hoping to talk with BLM herd manager of the Spring Creek Basin, Mike Jensen. Unfortunately, our schedules just didn't mesh. We hope to have them on a future show, but the next piece that TJ talks about is their relationship with the BLM. Now back to our conversation. Another thing I really want to say is that we are very grateful for our partnership with BLM. That is a crucial element of what we're able to get done in Spring Creek Basin is that we work very closely with BLM, and he is just, he's great. He's very, he has a very collaborative forward-thinking, partnership-oriented personality, and it's very easy to just talk to him. So we have a very good relationship, and I, I want to make sure that that gets into part of the thing because we do not take that for granted. It's, it's, a, huge, it's a huge deal, and it's, it's a challenge in, in a lot of places. And if anybody wants to learn more about the horses of Spring Creek Basin, you have a great blog, and you post a photo of one of the horses or just the area every day? Yes. <laughs> Spring Creek Basin. Spring Creek Basin Mustangs.com, I think. Great. And then if, and if people want to find out more about uh, helping the Mustangs or the BLM or they want to get involved, you know, how, how can we direct them? The American Wild Horse Campaign is a good resource. I worked on a resource guide with the Cloud Foundation here in the last year or so. That is online now. can't remember. It's something like WHBV Resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I can send you that link. I was just okay. looking at it yesterday. I don't have the, the URL right at the top of my head, but it is a, it's a great resource, and it was, it was set up exactly for the reason that you're asking, to give people kind of a kind of a one place to go with ideas to, you know, how to get started with a herd, how to document, you know, 
how to, to act around wild horses, be quiet, but don't be stealthy. Where are advocate groups already in place? You know, who can you go to for more information? You know, it's, it's a great, a great site. And I can't, I just can't think of the name off the top of my head, but it's something, so it's like Wild Horse and Burrow, so WHB Volunteers, WHB Fee Resources. Okay. I'll send you and, the link. Oh, that'd be great. And in years when you don't have a lot of rain, is there enough natural water or do you have to take water in? Uh, yes. <laughs> to answer both <laughs> questions, we generally end up having just enough water. Um, even when things are getting really low, like before the rains came this year and we got, so we got monsoons. We're in the Southwest. We get that kind of monsoonal rain pattern most years. Uh, the last two years we did not. Um, and so, you know, the humans are me, I'm fretting. I'm like, Oh, oh we got any water? We got water? And the horses are like, yeah, but we're eating and we're fat and we're happy and we're shiny and we're cool. So what's Don't the worry. problem there? <laughs> so this year, We've gotten rain. The ponds are all full again. Yeah. Um, great. They're they're fat and sassy and shiny. And, you know, our BLM guys were just out yesterday. We did a couple more land health assessments. And that was one of the first things he said when he got out of the truck was, you know, the horses look great. They're so shiny. They just, you know, the, everything's green. It looks fantastic out here. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on the show and educating our audience about the uh, wild horses in the Horses of Spring Creek Basin. Thank you. I appreciate every chance to talk about the Mustangs. Tell by just talking talking <laughs> to you about your the love that you have for these horses. Yeah, good. I'll tell you one more little story, and then Please. you can you know shut me up. When I first started <laughs> documenting the horses, I lived two hours away. In fact, for the first like four or five years that I was documenting the horses, I lived two hours away. You know, I realized it was a big thing, so I was coming out every weekend, which for me was during the week because I worked in a newspaper. It took me about three months to kind of figure out that I'd gotten everybody, that there weren't, you know, horses hiding somewhere, horses that I hadn't seen. I was seeing everybody, you know, multiple times. My mom started asking me, so, you know, what are you going to do with your weekend this weekend or whatever? I'm like, well, mom, I'm going out to the basin. She's like, what? You were just there. I'm like, yeah, but mom, things could have happened in the last week. I have to keep up. (laughs) I can't not go back. I mean, it's just there. Yeah. It's, I mean, even when things are the same, there's something, there's something, you know, yeah. and it's, it's the horses. It's, they are just, and I think Mustang people, anybody you talk to, that we have a hard time articulating it, but there's just <laughs> something else, something extra, something more. Yeah. As you said in the piece, our reason for being. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> They're pretty amazing. And I'm, I'm more in love with them every single day. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. That uh, TJ Holmes, she's got a lot of energy in her. She does. She's she's got a spark. <laughs> and she's doing she's doing some good work with those horses, and she's really making a difference. Which, you know, when it comes right down to it, that's what we all want to do. Mm-hmm. And TJ is going to be part of an extracurricular activity with the Best Horse Practices Summit that's happening in Durango in October. And we will be there to cover the event. Yes, we've been invited to the Best Horse Practices Summit, and we're going to cover the event. And we're going to be talking to many of the presenters at the event. 
and hopefully talk to some of the attendees too and see see what they're getting out of it. Yes, that that would be great. And TJ's going to run a field trip out to the the wild herd. Yes, the day after the summit's over, TJ is going to have people out to the Spring Creek Basin actually see those wild horses. That'd be fun. So, so it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. The thing I like about this Best Horse Practices Summit is it is a, a horse expo, but they're limiting it to about 200 or 250 people. And it's going to be a very intimate environment. There's going to be a lot of information passed. And I think it's going to be a very intense learning situation too. I know that's their intention. The there It didn't look like there would be overlapping seminars. They want everyone to be able to see everything and take away as much knowledge as they can from those those presentations. And we're looking at walking away from this event with some tools that we can really use to expand our horsemanship. So you can find out more about the Best Horse Practices Summit. I'll have the link in the show notes, or you can go to besthorsepractices.com and find out more about the summit from their webpage. So that'll do it for this show. Thanks to TJ Holmes for coming on and talking to us about the Spring Creek Basin Mustangs. It's a mouthful. And follow the Woe Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, Renee, you've got them almost all down. <laughs> you can find all the podcast episodes at woepodcast.com. So you can support the Woe Podcast in a number of ways. One is by clicking on the Amazon banner at woepodcast.com. If you're going to be buying something from Amazon, Go to Woe Podcast, click on the little Amazon link, and then when you go to make your purchase, we get a tiny bit of the proceeds. Yes, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. It's just a way we can defray some of the cost of production and distribution of the Woe Podcast. If you want to help out even more, you can click on the Patreon button at woepodcast.com. It's very simple, and a dollar, a couple dollars. We don't need a anything lot. Anything helps. <laughs> That's right. We don't need a lot. We we run this thing on a shoestring bu- budget, but there are some costs involved, and if we get a lot of people giving a little bit of money, that's all we ask for. As a matter of fact, we'd like to thank Susie for her recent donation on Patreon. And if you do become a patron, we'll put a picture of your horse and you on our Patreon page at wopodcast.com. That's it for today. Thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Oh, and remember to review and rate the podcast when you... I just read. I know. Jumped into my head. Don't worry about it. Okay. Until next time.